Hey out there, rock and rollers. Welcome to the 54th edition of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast, recorded here in central London, just off historic Abbey Road. I hope everyone's doing all right out there. A lot of new bad news in the news. Lots of dangerous stuff going on in the world via the virus, via violence. I just hope everyone's taking care of themselves. Usually when you get towards the end of the year here, you're talking about calming down. You're trying to get a little peace time. Maybe you want to travel. Maybe that's not going to happen this year. So I just hope everyone is safe and gets to chill out and enjoy a little rock and roll however you get it. We appreciate everybody listening to last week's show number 53 on YouTube's Octone Baby which recently turned 30 and they had a big deluxe edition out for that. I of course got the 20th anniversary edition but it was amazing how because it came out when Jackson and I were freshmen in college how many memories we had, how many emotional ties we had to it. Not to mention, of course, my story of working security at the show in Tampa and abandoning my post so I can go watch the show. You want to know more about that, you're going to have to listen to the episode yourself, which, of course, you can get anywhere, including now on Samsung. And we're happy to see so many Samsung phone users downloading and listening to the show. So welcome all over the world to you folks. And it's kind of a similar story for this week's show in that we're reviewing REM's document, which came out in 1987. And it came out at an important time in our lives in that it came out in freshman year of high school, a time where you're jockeying for position, you're trying to figure out who you are, you're trying to fit in, trying to figure out how all all this works. And R.E.M. had been a band that was up and coming, right? They were kind of from the underground or college alternative rock scene that didn't get a whole lot of airtime on the radio, didn't get a whole lot of MTV time, but were growing. And the previous album, Life's Rich Pageant, had done pretty well, had some great songs that are still classics to this day, maybe something we review at some point. But I was looking for new music outside of the pop, outside of the stuff that everybody else was listening to. And I found this record, which of course turned me on to their back catalog, which got me really excited about, wow, this is a great band that not everybody knows, but they're really awesome. And they have several albums. I think that was their fifth album. Plus they had some compilations and EP. So there's a lot to dive into with R.E.M. Plus being from Louisville, being, they're from Athens, Georgia. So they're not from that far away. They're not from London or New York or LA like most of the bands were. It was kind of from my region and somebody who I could get into. It was also a band that turned on my friend Tom. Tom C. is an old buddy of mine who's been in bands. He's a big music fan. He's, he's got a killer radio voice. And Document came to him in a very important time in that he's a little bit older, but instead of being a freshman in high school, he was actually transferring to a new high school in a new state, which kind of makes you a freshman all over again. And he joins us this week talk about his personal relationship to REM Document and seeing them on the Document Tour and how this was kind of a soundtrack to those pivotal high school years where you get your first car, your first girlfriend, you play in high school sports, you're going to parties and first big concerts. And so we're happy to welcome Tom C. here. I think you're really going to like his perspective. Now, as usual, you can hear all past episodes at www.uglyamericanwerewolf.libsyn.com. We hope you subscribe and download whenever you can. And also check us out at ugly underscore werewolf or at actionjack72 on Twitter. So without further delay, let's get into it. Me and Jackson with our buddy Tom C. talking about REM's document here on The Wolf. Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. 
Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. So I want to welcome our friend Tom C. to the show today. Tom, how you doing? I'm good. Good. Thanks, good. For, thanks for joining us, uh, talking about REM's document here. And I wanted to bring you in because you're a little older than me. Jackson and I were, were class of yeah. 91 high school, but we're basically the same generation. And, you know, REM going from being kind of an underground or college band. I remember Rolling Stone back then had the college charts they'd sometimes run under the top 40 charts. So you could see Robin Hitchcock, Bucks Frogs or whatever on there, REM Morrissey stuff on there. But they were kind of evolving from that into eventually when we were in college, certainly when we were graduating from college, there are these huge pop rock superstars. And I wanted to kind of get your take. And you were as a budding musician, obviously absorbed this and kind of took this with you as you started to make your own music eventually. It's like in brief, in a brief overview, how did you come to REM? And then what was its kind of effect on you as you kind of uh, wanted to understand music and yourself in, in your own way? Yeah, so a little bit of personal history. I, in 1986, was 15, and I moved from Orlando up to Newport News, well, Tidewater area. So Newport News, Williamsburg, Virginia. And in the middle of a school year, and I landed in this tiny school in Tidewater, Virginia, and everybody was excited. And this would have been October 86. Everybody was excited because they were going to see a show that weekend at William & Mary. And it was for R.E.M. And I had never heard of R.E.M. No idea who they were. Right. Nobody in Florida at that, at least in my circles, was talking about R.E.M. And that was that was actually the Life's Rich pageant tour. Oh, um, gotcha. And that, that was my first, like, who is this? What is this about? And I got to... I, I, would have to go back and look, but I think it was literally the week I moved. So it was kind of, that's one of my first impressions of moving was, oh, among other things, when you're 15 years old and getting thrown into a new environment, it's like the, one of the first things at that age that matters is who you listen to. Right. Who do you connect with? Yeah. Yeah. And so that was the first time I'd ever heard of them. I remember that very well. And so I picked up Life's Rich Pageant, you know, soon thereafter. So thinking about just the timing of all this, a year later, they were 
back playing at William and Mary, and I was there for that show. But over the course of that year, I had gotten familiar with Live Church Pageant and then gone back and listened to a few of their, well, I think probably all of their albums leading mm-hmm. up to that, because that's what you did. So that, that was my intro to REM and that first year. And then, of course, over the next year or so, I started driving. There were a few other bands, but it was really 1987 that I was my first in-person experience with them, you know, getting to see them on the on the document tour. And, and you know, like you said, there this that leap from Life's Rich Pageant to Document for, I'm sure, a bunch of reasons we'll talk about, like, was a light year kind of, it was a separator for them in terms of where they had been and then what the next... 10 years was going to look like for them. Right. Were you, right them on, were, you, were, you, were you buying them on cassette or were you buying LPs back then? So, so this is, I've been thinking about this a lot, like going back. It's been a long time since I listened to this record, but I, a couple things, my first impressions kind of going back to it is how it still resonates with me. It, it holds up pretty well. It's really good. Track by track, the songs that really hit me back then, I remember, and the ones that mm, weren't my favorite still, maybe not, you know, I haven't come around on that. <laughs> A couple of those, but Good. but yeah, I bought it on cassette, and so and it and it dawned on me when I was listening to it uh, now on Spotify. <laughs> when I got to it's the end of the world as we know it, I was like, oh, it's the end of side one. Exactly. <laughs> I was like, I was trying to explain this to my eleven year old, and it was like, you can't really. But it also dawned on me. So this this period of time overlaps with me turning 15 to 16 and beginning to drive mm-hmm. it also overlaps with cd players and cds coming out because right. document was one of those albums that everybody was like you got to hear it on cd and by that time my cassette was it had some miles on it right and my cassette player you'd have to take it out flip it over but i re- distinctly remember that moment when i got the cd and i was like you know i don't i don't have artwork from that time but i i think in those early days they actually even though it was all on one side. Obviously, there was one-sided CDs, but I feel like on the artwork, it actually still indicated mm. a side one and a side two back then. But yeah, it just that was that dawned on me the whole concept of laying out your sequencing your songs and having side one end with life's rich. Or I'm sorry, uh, it's the end of the world as we know it, and side two starting with the one I love. Like obviously, intentional decisions that made a lot of sense when you have a two-sided record. That's right. But yeah. Absolutely. No, we talk about sequencing all the time. Like, you know, you open, you have to open up strong. The second one has to be good. Third one goes back a notch. How do you end the side? How do you end the album? Always big. Jackson, what about you? You weren't really into REM in high school. I mean, I feel like I forced it on you at some point. Well, it's odd because when you wanted to do this record, I was like, okay, I've never really heard this before. And then I went to listen to it. And then it was, hey, wait a minute. Yeah, I have. It was like meeting kind of an old friend. I didn't listen to it purposefully. I had other friends and I may have had a lady friend who at the time was really into it. So I listened to it because she liked it. And so it was, it was like, it was like finding a box in the attic full of stuff that was interesting. And so, yeah, it kind of washed over me. Like I was back there again in high school. Like, yeah, I, I didn't really listen to that purposefully, but these are definitely, this is a great record and I, it, it unintentionally held a lot of memories for me. Oh, well, that's cool. Uh, we'll definitely be able to dig into that, man. Uh, yeah. It's, it's funny how, yeah, your lady friend plays like, okay, I can listen. I'm not really listening. But subliminally, it's getting in there, isn't it? Correct. Yeah. yeah. And, and, then it, and then when I hear these, it reminds me of the times that we, you know, we would hang out, you know, just other times in high school. And since I didn't really listen to it after that a whole bunch, I mean, we, we listened to it together. But then, they, you know, the newer stuff came out when we were in, in college. Automatic for the People, like, 
think that was a big, that was a huge record on rock radio. So we kind of moved into the newer stuff. So this was like, like I said, it was like washing back over me, the, the old memories. Cool. All right, good. Well, yeah, for me, it was that time. So we're a couple years younger, Tom. So, you know, in 1987, I turned 14. We're freshmen in high school, me and Jackson. And I, in eighth grade, I was starting to realize that the pop music that was so big, especially on MTV when we were kids, from like Duran Duran era up until what was starting to become what some people call hair metal. A lot of rock bands, but now a lot of them starting to look the same. And and pop was bad to me. Like I realized I needed to explore something outside of just what they're feeding me on MTV or just what all the other kids are listening to. And I started with like, all right, I like the police. I loved uh, Synchronicity. Maybe I should go back and get Zenyatta Mandata. Maybe I should go back and get Ghost in the Machine, stuff like that. Listen to music that you know will be good. And then I had a friend, Todd. He uh, He was way into music as well, but he had found this kind of alternative scene like the 120 minutes on MTV and stuff that wasn't on mainstream MTV, it wasn't really on the radio. It was kind of college music, you know, alternative in college. They didn't quite know how to market it just yet. And it would include the Smiths yep. and, and the B-52s, the Valfems and people like that going back to the life. And then, you know, a whole lot of people like The Fall. And I saw the church on there, you know, at some point. And so they had a show 120 minutes that we would check out together and kind of pick things off there that we liked. And REM was huge. They were the big kind of college. And my friends who were older, like older brothers and sisters of friends who were at college, they were kind of talking about REM a little bit. And yeah, this one was the first one because of the one I love, because of the single. And we'll talk about it. This was the first time they kind of had a big hit single, like top 40 type single. And I heard it on the radio. I'm like, ooh, that's really good. Who are they? You know, and then eventually I got the cassette. And yeah, and I can recall nights that I would have my Walkman in. All right, it's bedtime, no more listening to music. I get the Walkman out and I would play it. And yeah, it's the end of the world as you know it. And you flip it over, it's the one I love. And then you flip it over, it's the end of the world as you know it. And you flip it over, it's the one. So I would do that so I could hear those songs over and over again. Yeah. But then, yes, no, it got me into different kinds of music. And yeah, CDs started to become my thing at that point. I think maybe that summer I got my CD player. So I got Murmur and Reckoning and uh, Life's Rich, all these things on CD. Although I may have gotten a few with you either legally or extra legally through the Columbia house thing at school there gary uh no comment on that <laughs> um you know if, and for me to remembering this album and then green after it as somebody who was not really into rem i mean i knew who they were i'd heard them a little bit before but this started to get into like polarizing the two camps mm. there were the there were the old school people we've listened to them since the beginning and then there were the people who got into them, and it got like I remember my high school. It got real ugly, and I'm like, I, I don't want to be a part of this. I mean, you know, because it's like, well, you have to be one or the other. You have to either be an old school true fan, or you have to be the new pop fan. I said, mm-mm, mm-mm, I'm not. I'm out of this. Yeah, I listen to the cult. You guys suck. Yeah, correct. Yeah, I'm going. I'm going yeah, I'm taking, taking my marbles and going somewhere else. But yeah, it was really, it was really polarizing, and you could hear it on this record. This is real. It's a lot slick. Right from the production value, right off the bat, you're like, oh, this is. You can definitely see where they're starting to go. They're starting to go more mainstream, even though when you listen to the, if you listen to all the lyrics. They're really not like there's it, this is pretty heavy duty. And I don't know if I told you the story before, but this it, it happened again last night. We've got a we've got friends here and and the wife, she's a sweet woman. I love her. She's very nice, but she's real like naive. Like she like kind of just kind of floats through life. And so the the husband was talking about the song OPP. 
Mm. And she was like, oh, yeah, I love that song. And he was like, you know what it's about? It's, I've never – what? I've never listened to the lyrics. You could kind of almost do this with this record. Mm-hmm. Like you could listen to him like, oh, that's a nice song. Did you really hear what he was saying? Oh, <laughs> right. wait a minute. Yeah. That's a little bit it, – it's heavy duty. So it's really – I mean it's a fantastic record, but it's – you kind of really have to get your hands around it to to appreciate the whole thing. Yeah. that I, I'm glad you brought that up because I was thinking about this as well because it's very political and R.E.M. was always political. And for me at that age, that's just when my mind was starting to think about those bigger issues or – you know, and I think a lot of those issues got introduced to me from – some of the bands I was listening to, but REM was kind of front and center there. Just yeah. like they were front and center for like the alternative music scene. They were, to me, they, they kind of defined it. And like, that's really what I remember being some of those first conversations about old school news. Like, you know, they're selling out. I liked them before they were big. Those, mm-hmm. those are conversations everybody has about some band at some given time. And that for me really started with REM. It was like, they were very small. And then it's, it was document though, that at least kids my age and my environments, everybody, everywhere, they were suddenly listening to it. MTV has a lot to do with that. Sure. Right. And, and that big single. But yeah, I was thinking about the politics of it too, because they, they are, it started making me, I think, go back to some of the bands I'd listened to, whether it be even the Beatles or the Stones and think about, oh, the political and cultural context of like some of those songs, like that they had been putting out, just never really marrying those two things together before that point in time. And then it also didn't hurt that U2 was also coming right and center consciousness. I was looking back at the dates and like when I saw doc, that document show at William and Mary, I don't know, I'm guessing that gym was maybe 8,000 people. Okay. Wow. And it was, that was in October. And then in December, the first or second week of December, I saw the Joshua Tree tour in Hampton Coliseum. And they did two dates. But also, again, they were they were also very... They're conscientious. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and then, of course, when you're 15 or 16, that, that's even... It's... It can be consuming and like exciting and you're, you've never really thought and you, it feels so important at the time and it transcends music and all these things. And, and that's, it was just firing on all, all those places in my brain when I was coming up on this, this record. But I do think the production value is notice. Well, it is noticeably different, noticeably. obviously from the live search pageant to document. I think that this really teed them up for green and automatic for the people and out of time and those those following, which were all Scotland too. Right. I mean, that's kind of part of where we are as well. I mean, I, I love Life's Rich Pageant personally. It, it's pre-document. Even with document, it might be my favorite through document even, which would probably make it my favorite of all time because I, as Jackson mentioned, one of those old school guys. And though I did continue to follow them and they had some good stuff while we were in college, they, they can kind of continue to go on. Maybe I diverged with my taste a little bit. They outgrew me. I outgrew them. It, it's funny. It's kind of, we like to put that or, you know, poke fun at the uh, the New Yorkers and the, the folks who are like, no, the talking heads are amazing. I saw them with television at CBGB in 19. No one else was there. People from Kansas wouldn't understand. And this is kind of like the Southern version of that. Like R.E.M.'s like, we love them. They're our college underground band, you know, and you, you jackholes don't, you know, you'll take them away from us kind of thing. We know them. You don't know them. Basically the same thing. But, uh, but they, they needed to grow but, up, and there's nothing wrong with that, right? Yeah, and you were mentioning the Joshua Tree, which came out, I believe, the same year, 87. Mm-hmm. It's cool because they've got, they can they can put heavy-duty messages in songs that you can listen to and that you want to listen to. They're not, you know, whiny and cry. They just do it in a way that lends itself to you can to listen listening to it and and like you said they're not all going to be radio hits some of them were on this record but definitely not in the past and even though U2 was a huge 
had a huge record, it was still something that you could listen to and, and connect with. Mm-hmm. And especially at that time in your life, like Max said, we were a little bit younger, but still, I, I just felt like for me, you two just kind of grabbed the hold. And if I if I had worked at this, I, I think it would have done the same thing. Yeah, I, I think, <clears throat> and I think that was intentional on REM's part. I mean, because some of the themes that they brought up on on Document especially around Iran-Contra and some of the stuff that the U.S. was doing down in Central America, they had brought up before, but in a more obscure, not-so-direct way. So, like, Welcome to the Occupation being more direct. And direct. Obviously, I think they were they were at a point, not only to be more direct with their political messaging, I don't think I don't think it comes off necessarily as preachy, at least it didn't to me, because you could still listen to it. Still, it, it stood up on its own as, as a great rock song, but the production value and some of, I think, the clarity that Stipe sings with on this album, it was a, that was kind of a progression, but... His uh, voice yeah. is more clear. I, I think Scott Litt did well to kind of take the murkiness out of his voice, you know? Of course, I, he was a reluctant lead singer in the first place. He, like Jim Morrison, would stand with his back to the audience when he was first in the early 80s or late 70s, whenever they got started. And I think it kind of translated onto those first few albums where, yeah, maybe it's a little... It, it does sound like it's recorded in somebody's shed or something like that. So Scott Litt definitely cleaned that up. But as far as, yes, some of the lyrics are much more clear in your face, but he still has a an obliqueness, to use a big word that I barely know the meaning of. Stipe never wants to be right up in your face. And I think that's a great thing for a lyricist to do, is let the audience take some of this on. Don't just be, I drove in my car to pick up my baby. You, you can put your own stuff in there and, and leave it open to interpretation. I think there's still a lot of that on this album. You know, the other thing too, listening to it, Stipe has a very distinctive voice. You know, we've talked in the past about people with rock and roll voices. You know it's him right off the bat. Mm-hmm. And so to your point, you know, somebody who didn't want to be a lead singer, he has a very iconic rock and roll voice. Yeah, he really does. At times it's 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 resonant. It has an edge. And at times it's also pretty pretty thin, pretty can get in some of the upper registers, kinda of little nasally. But like but it ha- he brings he has a true voice. You like you said, Jackson, it's it's that's unmistakably Michael Stipe. And it's kind of in that way pretty fearless, I think. You know, the way it's a lot of just not mumbling, but sound in the earlier record, sound shaping and rhythmic and really set back in the music. It still is that way on document, but it's much more articulated. And you can just tell he's his confidence is starting to really push him or I guess allow him to be more out front mm-hmm. and more direct in his messaging. I mean, I, I, had, I went back trying to figure out like what the exact time frame was when I saw him. So the, the things I remember, I kind of remember my where my seats were. They weren't great seats at all for this show in 87. The other thing I remember was the opening act was 10,000 Maniacs. Right. And they were kind of, they had a big MTV hit and I'm going to screw it up, but I think it's change in the weather. I think Talk about the weather, yeah. Talk about the weather, that's mm-hmm. it. But that was when Natalie Merchant was first, like I became aware of her. <laughs> to do her own thing, totally not really rock and roll, but as I was going back through it, the amount of touring that REM did for even almost a decade before that show is pretty astonishing. 80, especially 86 and 87, those years, mm-hmm. I, 
I don't have an easy way to go up and do a count, but it's it's it looks to be close to 300 dates. Wow. It, there's not a month in which they have single digit dates at least. So they were just constantly out there hammering it. And I have to believe that when you're doing that, because you if you also look at the the time the amount of albums they put out in that time frame. And then if you go from document to out of time or on my that's that's not I mean I guess that would we're talking probably eighty seven to maybe ninety three. That's a lot that's pretty pretty I mean that's prolific. They put albums out almost every year for five or six years and they were all whether whether they were my favorite or your favorite they were all of a high quality and all commercially successful yeah by any measure so it's pretty remarkable well yeah um, they, I, don't, I don't think we see that anymore no no well, that's, least, that used to be the way bands made it you just went out worked right you went out and you played dates and I mean, there's a good possibility that you saw something like something from Green when you saw them on that tour because they were always previewing stuff that they would then later take into the studio and work on albums later. All bands used to do that, right? Before it became this precise business where every show has to be the same and all the lights hit at the same time. They would do covers. That whole Dead Lever office is full of stuff they would have played live and did play live sometimes. You know? Yeah, so, so they played Orange Crush at yeah. that show, which I would not have... It would have been the first time any of us heard it. Exactly. Uh, that was, yeah. Yes, yes, and that would be the big hit on the next album, which wasn't my favorite. It wasn't bad. Mm-hmm. Green was not my favorite. Uh, Orange Crush wasn't bad. I, I, I like that. I did see them on that tour. I saw them at Louisville Gardens, or the Armory, as we known back in the day. We saw them on that tour, the Green tour. All right, well, let's talk about the band a little bit. We talked a little bit about Stipe. Peter Buck is an interesting character. Usually Gary and I gravitate towards lead guitar player because kind of in our blues heavy hard rock world he that's usually one of the superstars of the show and, and Bucky is here too but it's not in that traditional look at me wail on this kind of way some of his solos are kind of pedestrian I don't hate to use that word they, they fit well they're simple they're yeah very exactly simple. there was a guy named Kevin Seal on 120 minutes I guess he was kind of the host and he would say one of the hallmarks of this alternative music that we show on 120 Minutes is there. there's no big solos like you hear in hard rock or heavy metal or that kind of thing. And so there's not a lot about that, a lot of that, but there's always something in the tune that Peter adds, not just maybe the riff, but a little bit of a, a solo, you would call it, that always kind of helps it out. And he seemed like a smart guy to me. He was the one who convinced everybody, let's just share the royalties 25% across the board because everyone will bring their own stuff, right? You know, I don't play the bass. Mikey, you come in and make the bass good. Bill, you make the drums. Michael will do his thing with the lyrics and we can all help out. And they never broke up. The only change they ever had was eventually Bill Berry sat out, but they didn't have people in and out. And that's a huge reason for their success, to be honest with you. Yeah, that's remarkable to think about that they went from, I, I think the, the the story is they first co- uh, show as R.A.M. was in some church in Athens, mm-hmm. but the, to the, that they were going through from that and became literally an international mega band that was on the front of Rolling Stone and, and had string after string of albums. And they were able to hold it together that whole time is, is that is remarkable. That's that's that is also unusual, yeah. um, especially when they're touring that much. Like they lived with each other on top of each other for a decade prior to becoming an overnight sensation when MTV picked them up and they started getting some of these hits out there. But I think that's the hallmark of being an actual band. It wasn't just some guy and three other guys uh-huh. that you see a lot, and then it turns into like I heard an interview with Billy Corrigan from the Smashing Pumpkins, and basically that's what he thought. It's my band. I do everything. I write the music. These people work for me. 
that's not I, I never got that with REM. It was truly a band, and that could have come from Stipe maybe not wanting to be the, the front guy all the time. He needed these other dudes there to kind of support him. To your point, Mac, about the uh, the solo stuff, yeah, that, that could have been one of the turnoffs for me originally because Peter Buck wasn't the lead guitar guy that I loved. The look at me, I'm going to play loud and fast and you know build the song off of the guitar riff and solo. Yeah, they just kind of all, they take the four parts and they kind of just blend them together and it works really well yeah and i think buck played this he had he did have a signature sound with his brick and maybe it kind of traced it back maybe to a little bit of the birds it was it had a little bit of that jangle he did, did some picking mm-hmm. and but it was also very atmospheric mm-hmm. you know they would work some some drone and some feedback in, into the beginning of songs and it was not just strumming of chords and and even the chord selection they had although their progressions were fairly simple. They were they were interesting. They were clearly influenced by a lot of different types of music. Mm-hmm. He, his is very distinctive. And, and you know, I don't want to diminish his solos because while they're simple, they were sometimes that's what you need. Just, they, yeah, absolutely. They were perfect. They were perfect or, yeah. for the song. They were perfect yeah. for the R&B sound. Yeah, Mike Campbell from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers is a perfect example of this. He doesn't wail on those things. Yeah. He gets in, he does it right, just right for the song, and it gets out. It's not flashy, it's just right. Yeah, and I think that just all the band members really kind of brought something distinctive. I think Barry was probably the one to me that just kind of, he, now he just laid it down and he just made space. But, you know, when I hear one of the things that set them apart, even on their early records, was the harmonies. Mike Mills. That, that Mills, mm-hmm. yeah, that he brought in. And, and his bass lines, too, are also pretty I mean, they're great. I mean, they're simple, but they they drive the song in a lot of cases. You know, and on document, you know, it, I was just kind of paying attention to some of the stuff he was doing on Finest Work Song, and it's the bass, and then also his voice, and you know, they're they're doing extra tracks with Stipe, so he's also doing some harmonies as well. But mm-hmm. they really were they were they were different. You know, they weren't the Police, and they weren't just coming straight out of a the big rock bands of the '70s and '80s. They were incorporating some a little bit of country sometimes. Sure. a little bit of folk sometimes and blending that in and I think I think that's kind of why they get the alt rock or the they at least to me like kind of get the moniker of, they were the ones that kind of started defining that that college scene college music scene because they really were you whether you were coming from rock or whether you were coming from country or folk or acoustic you could hear a little bit of that in their music um, and and even like with their harmonies some some Beatles and Beach Boys type of layering of I'm not saying it went to that level, but it was it was something different that other bands weren't doing who were just, you know, that you would see it in a college. Yeah. Mike Mike Mills is a stone cold killer. I mean, he's he is the a lot of the sound of REM is Mike Mills doing the bass line and doing those harmonies in the back. He could have been his own lead singer. In fact, there's a song off of Out of Time, I think, called Texarkana, where he <laughs> sings the lead. I love that song. <laughs> and it's it's always it, it's just cool to hear somebody else sing and the way that he fits his voice into he does what Stipe is not doing or can't do or whatever and the two of them just go together but real understated and just walking the bass all around and then that's a testament to Bill Berry like you said laying it down rock solid so that he can walk around underneath there yeah I always thought he was the he was the kind of the unsung hero of the band well let's get into the songs a little bit guys we don't have a oh, ton of time with Tom but yet you start off with the finest work song and if you deconstruct it a little bit all Pete's doing is hitting this like B note that 
it's the same note over and over. Like, that's not a song. But what, <laughs> but Mills and Barry do their thing really well. And he even said something about, like, those guys had a way of just putting something together. They basically played it once, and it was done. It was it was ready to go. And then Mike comes, and, and Michael puts his thing on, on top of it. But it starts off with a bit of a bounce to it, right? It's a good way to start the record. I mean, considering you could say there were bigger hits later on on this record it's a it's a fun way to start it off kind of different yeah and i and i thought too just listening to the beginning of this first track i thought yeah this is because I, I listened to some older stuff just to kind of get the pump primed here to do this it's already slicker you can already tell this is a they spent more money on this record it's more professionally done yeah it's it, they're they're on their way up the i don't want to say legitimacy chart because it just—it's just somebody recognized this is going to go somewhere. Let's let's start to put some money toward this and make this into what it should be. I guess at that point in time. Yeah, I mean, it's and it—I think it actually is a nice transition that picks up where Life's Rich Pageant left off. It is one of the songs on the album that I feel could have fit. I mean, production value aside, which I think is a kind of a, a step up, at least from a, a sound clarity perspective, and then just the overall composition. It. it from a song perspective, it could have fit on Life's Rich Pageant, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, yeah. I, I love the that kind of hitting that pedal note over and over again and just setting up. And you, even when you sit, when you mention that song, I can hear that drone and I can also hear Mills's intro bass line where he's sliding down the bass. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's just, it's just a great way to kick this album off, I think. And because it, it does, it, it sets it up in terms of production value and, and kind of picks up where Life Search Pageant left off. Yeah, I agree with, with both of you there. But when you change to, all right, Finest Work song is, it kind of sounds like it's an anthem. Got to dig maybe a little bit deeper to find out, well, maybe that's not exactly it, but welcome to the occupation. All right, now we're kind of up in your face about like, we are not into this Reaganism, this conservative track the country is taking and it just becomes a little more prevalent in your face that way i don't know what do you think about that tom c yeah i mean i i think for for me this is one of my high points of the album and it starts to get really explicitly political and then of course it's going to be followed by i think followed by exhuming mccarthy i don't have the track listing in front of me but the it's a I guess part of a piece of some of the songs from their earlier albums that really focused on some of the things that were going on in Central America. And, you know, I was still a little bit young to be fully aware of, especially those earlier albums, like, because I wasn't even listening to those necessarily in real time, but Green Grow the Rushes, I know, and, and Flowers for Guatemala were both references to some of the, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, intervention or tinkering or puppet mas- yes, master tearing. Finding yeah. his way down there. Iran Contra kind of stuff. You're right. I I didn't always listen specifically what these lyrics were saying, but like it subliminally got into Jackson's head the music thanks to maybe a woman. These these themes, these tones, these facts that maybe we weren't paying attention to because we're in Lily's suburbia and there's no there's no gunmen on our streets. It, it subliminally got into us as well there, and that. That's a good thing, I guess. And this this track was a little it was a little heavier, a little darker than than the first track, and so yeah, we're, you're kind of getting back to maybe a little more old school REM. But you're right, you know, you could listen to the song a hundred times, like, ah, and then you, it's the the what he's saying starts to like sink into your brain, like, well, wait a minute, maybe I missed something here. Let's let's go back. What else did I miss on this record? But Peter Buck can use his guitar to you know just do a little do a little heavy strumming there. <laughs> 
to, to transition and make it sound like, okay, now this is picking up, right? The stakes are getting higher. You know, the song concludes with Stipe saying, listen to me, mm-hmm. like kind of over and over again. I think maybe if you're listening to that in the back, driving around, or if you're at a party and that's it, eventually that you start, hmm, what does he want me to listen to? Yeah. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Maybe I should, maybe there is something he's pushing here that is worth a second listen. Yeah, maybe it's not um, just teenage angst. Please, someone hear why I'm unhappy in teenage suburbia. Right. And maybe it's connected. And, you know, and that's, that's kind of one of those, we're talking about his voice. That's one of those moments where he is, he, he really starts in a low register when he's saying that line. And then as he, he repeats it, he's coming up. He's coming up, and it can get to that point where you're like, "Is this in a vacuum without context here? This is a really whiny singer." But he's really getting—he's—he's he's built it up to like this pleading, "Listen to me, like listen to what I'm saying. This is—you know—this matters." Um, and I think that is something that is pretty hard to do as a as a singer. And I think it requires having the confidence to kind of put yourself out there and have have your voice, even though you know you don't—you're not—you know Sinatra, or you're not going to be having the crooner's voice, putting it out there and just knowing how to use it and knowing how to build it and how to, to set up moments like that. And he, he's obviously one of the best at that. And one of the, uh, one of the lines I wrote down, you know, th- things keep coming back over and over and over again. Listen to Congress propagate confusion. Mm, still, still doing that. Huh? Well, I mean, okay, and then cool. right into exhuming <laughs> McCarthy. Oh my God. I mean, exhuming McCarthy, you're thinking about McCarthy. Hey, who was McCarthy's right hand man? His little prick named Roy Cohn. Roy Cohn was the guy who really helped Donald Trump understand how to manipulate the media and the law in your favor, right? So I'm like, I didn't really know all that when I first heard this song because you know what? This is kind of an upbeat track. You could dance to this, Tom. This isn't talking about America getting screwed over by their government. This is like, hey, come on, grab that girl and get out on the floor. You know? Yeah, the, the uh, when he plays a clip from one of the congressional hearings and exhuming McCarthy around McCarthy, have you no sense of decency? Have you left no sense of decency? Which, outside of this record, I'll be honest, had no context for me until recently. And I heard I heard a historian this past year talking about some of the impeachment proceedings, reminding him of that moment when there were people clearly in, in Congress during some of those proceedings, you know, the Jim Jordan types, mm-hmm. and who were just clearly not being honest, just not not being honest and being a shill for a wannabe dictator or authoritarian leaning president. And it's interesting that because I was thinking about the same thing, how this album, I wish we had an R.A.M. now to write this album in 2020 or, you know, 2019, what that would have sounded like, because I know I know there's politics and music. It's just the environment's so different. Of course, I'm at a different age, but the environment's so different and so dispersed that back then we had MTV, but just radio in general. So when I think about today, if there was an analog to this where people were trying to, to put their political together, an album that had some kind of political message, I just don't even know. I don't know that we have an environment that 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 sets up for something like that anymore. They can kind of capture so many people's attention. Right, right. Because everything's so spread out over the internet and everything's it's such narrow casting. I mean, people are only going to go after what they want. And so there is no one platform, like if you play it on the nightly news or you play it on the big radio station or whatever, it'll get through. Hey guys, this is Ryan Condal, the executive producer, writer, creator of House of the Dragon. And you're listening to the Ugly American Werewolf in London podcast. And you should download and subscribe. Keep doing that. Let's actually do the one I love first. I know that's not the order in which they fall on the 
tape or the CD. I know, I know. But it was the first single. It was the first song that I ever heard and it captured my attention. And obviously it's, although like Jackson says, are you listening to what he's saying? Because when you hear it, it's such a pretty song. It's about the one I love. So people think it's a love song, but it's really not, right? It's like every breath you take, I'm like, listen to what he's saying. <laughs> you know? But this is the fire part when, when they had scrolled in the CD or in the cassette file under fire he's singing fire during the chorus and so obviously and he said it's not about anyone specific but it could be about a lot of different things people from your past who you're no longer with that you've moved on from there could be a lot of different themes there right yeah like i mean the the, the twist the line with the all twists on it is a simple prop to occupy my time is mm-hmm. like oh yeah okay so that's not very nice but yeah, this song, it's clearly like, like if you're listening to this album, I think it's definitely one of the ones that you're going to be like, oh, that's, that's going to be what the A&R guys want to put out as a single. That Because this this one goes out to the one I love is such a, it's, it could have been from a 50s soul song. Right. Or, you know, so I, I mean, I think that, you know, what I was saying, you could kind of come to that. It's very accessible in that way. You could come to this from a lot of different places and this song would sound like in that tradition or in a, in a pop tradition. But yeah, at the same time, you start listening to it, you're like, well, this is actually pretty dark. This is actually not a love song at all. What but I, I think for me, I don't know. yeah, I, the last thing I'll say about that is I, for me, I this was also the video. Like this was the big video that kind of introduced R.E.M., I think, to a wider audience. Yeah, I, definitely. This was the first song I ever heard from them off the radio. And yeah, it, it is. I didn't get it at the beginning, but yeah, going back and listen to it now, you're like, well, hey, wait a minute, what are you, what are you saying? You know, are you is this is this somebody who was maybe you're not with anymore, and maybe it's you're saying now, well, I didn't really even love you anyway. You know, whatever. That was just you were just a prop to occupy my time. Okay, really, or are you crying about this now because you would really take her back in a second? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's it's again, it's one of those things where you can listen to this more and more and and connect with it on different levels you can connect on it because it reminds you of a time when you first listened to it but maybe it can remind you of somebody who you loved in the past in your own life it doesn't get old it gets more it's it's like a it's like a baseball glove that you wear in more it gets better as you wear it more and more and use it and listen to it yeah it doesn't it doesn't just fade over time well jack uh, tom i agree this is the first video i remember like seeing it on 120 minutes it actually got on some mainstream MTV too but you kind of yeah. wait it would be on every 120 minutes right so you would, you would wait for it to come up and they famously didn't appear in their videos for the longest time REM they, they, they didn't want to be famous that way with the music to speak for himself Michael was shy to be on camera and everything so alright fine we're not going to put you in the videos which also leads it up to interpretation whereas in the end of the it's the end of the world we know it video in a lot of ways that kind of became the big Bigger song in soundtracks, you know, as a theme song in movies, and, and just but it's such an upbeat song given the theme and the way where he's delivering it, you know, bouncing around on those songs. How many takes do you think they, they did that in time? They didn't do that in one take, right? It took a long time to get all that in, but it's it's really kind of a cultural touchstone, like everyone knows that song. Well, a touchstone in that way, but also a touchstone in like it, he's throwing out things that make you what is he even like? I don't think I knew who Lenny Bruce was before I heard this song. I was like, who's Lenny Bruce? Right. Like, who's like, and why is so he not afraid? Shouldn't he be afraid of something? <laughs> right. <laughs> like, he's a brave man. He must be a brave, brave man. So, but in that way, just kind of how he's rolling through it, you know, that was always the song, that, you know, in high school that, and I would have to say, like, I think if you're going to hear a song on whatever, whatever the radio 
is these days. If you're going to hear a song anywhere from this album, it's got to be one of these two songs. Probably End of the World as we know it, though. Probably. Yeah, because I do think it's the one that got the highest profile and still has relevance and, and resonates today. But yeah, I do think it's a, like that cultural touchstone that, that, that in that sense that it's also just culturally, it's referencing so many different things. So if you're in the car, and I don't care where you are, and yeah. that you hear that bump it bump bump it bump, you just turn it right up because you know that's great. It start and then I remember listening to it, trying to get because I mean this was back before you had the internet, so you were trying to pick out exactly what he was saying so that you could sing along. It would sit super fast. Like you said there's references. You're like, I have no idea who you know who uh, Lester Beggs was. I guess he was a columnist for Cream. I read that, but I didn't know that. Whatever. And what I really love about this song is Mike Mills because he comes in on top. And then when they, at the end, when it's just the two of them and they're singing, and I don't know, you're a musician, so you can tell me what this is. It's not, it's not a round, but like Stipe starts and then Mills comes in on top of him, like kind of almost a step behind. That's fantastic. I love that part. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I mean, and I was at an age where we would play this at the end of the night at, if we were out or uh, if it was. New Year's Eve, it was definitely a staple that we would be playing, and, and it would be me and knucklehead friends trying to memorize all the words and, and sing along with it, and think that was really cool. <laughs> and, no and, and there was something, there was something for me that resonated just with that. It's the end of the world, but I feel fine. You know, yeah. whatever, doesn't matter. I don't care. Hey Moving man, on. birthday party, cheesecake, jelly bean, boom, that's fun. <laughs> you can sing that, right? <laughs> Everyone's hopping around that song. Remembering Tommy Boy. When they were singing it after their big sale, they were all excited about that. Yeah, but the video was like, you know, a kid living by himself like a skate rat kind of teenager with no parents around and the house is falling in. But at the end, yeah, when they jangle it back up a little bit again, he's hopping around like, yeah, I feel fine. That's great. Because I'm homeless and living by myself. I got a skateboard and a dog, man. What else could I want in this world? Yeah, what other standouts are there on the album for you guys as far as favorite favorite tunes? I have to say, I've, I've got the last two. So King of Birds, it's just a different song. It's, it's a, the instrumentation is different and it was kind of one of their either my guess is i loved it i'm guessing there were a lot of people that hated that song but it definitely i felt like was stipe but you know some of his most lyrically interesting and i think i think it starts it's also where i think buck starts to experiment a little bit more with his instrumentation Mm. Um, i believe there's some mandolin on that song and it almost kind of sounds at the end like a sitar like what is that like yeah it doesn't sound like anything he's done i think it's a dulcimer okay yeah yeah like that's right yeah so he's he's really starting to bring in some other strings instruments and there's just a lot of space in it and Stipe's vocals are really really out front and just I think it's a kind of a more meditative track it reminds me of it in some ways kind of a predecessor to you are the everything on the next album and then even a little bit of you know losing my religion I think with some of the starting to play with different stringed instruments definitely uh, this is definitely a portent yeah. of things to come and out of time I loved I liked a lot more than I like green and yeah no and I again this is Scott Lynn I think I part of his influence yeah, he brought some sure. horns in on exhuming mccarthy and he's pushing peter to maybe play you know look you you know how to do strings let's let's mix it up a little bit there see i was gonna say i was gonna say fireplace because in the middle of it they goes into that sax solo i'm like what is this i mean <laughs> it, it doesn't 
it's 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 out of place, but it totally works in the song. And my thing is, man, I'll tell you what: in January first of nineteen ninety, there were a lot of dudes looking for work who played saxophone because it was on a lot of stuff in the eighties. Yeah. But in this in this context, it really it worked really well in the song. That that is one of the moments where I'm like, oh, this is definitely. I feel like that's got to be Scott Litt saying, "Hey, let's try this." Right. You know, my cousin he plays saxophone. It's <laughs> really cool. Why don't we have him come? All right. But yeah, I would I would also call out Oddfellows Local 151 as yeah. one of my favorites on this album. And you know, if you if you dig, if you listen to it. So the context here is that it's written about, a, I guess, an area of town or like down the street from where they were recording or rehearsing that where there, there was a lot of folks just drunk down and out living in cars and actually making that connection that the 151 was proof. Right. It's the rum. Um, yeah. And it's the rum. So I, I really love the lyrics to that song. I just, it's one I find myself coming back to over and over again. I don't, it's got a, a great riff and it, I think Stipe's voice is at his, it's just, I like the edge he has in this song and it's, it just kind of highlights a lot of the things they're really, really good at. Yeah. Um, I think it's super strong to end on. Let's see that firehouse at the end. Firehouse! Bring yeah. it back to the yeah. fire again. Yeah, he, he's using his yeah. voice in a, in a real way there. And yeah, we, we knew an odd fellow who loved the 151, didn't we, Jackson? Unfortunately, yes. And he would at times entice us to partake in that and it never ended well. For, yeah. for anybody. Yikes. Oh my god. <laughs> so I always think of John when I hear this song, even though growing up I didn't know him when I was listening to it on my cassette, on my walkman. But anytime I hear one five one run, there's only one person that I that I ever think about. <laughs> Tom, you want any closing thoughts? I know you got to run here, but any memories from the show or overall feelings on the on the record? You know, it's funny. Like the show, I, it, it's amazing to me how close. How when I was singing through it, just I've got some the memory of where I was sitting in the show. The, the memory of Stipe coming out and singing something with Ten Thousand Maniacs, and then Natalie Merchant doing the same on a song. I don't know what song it was. I feel like it was in the encore, but just getting that, you know, this for me was in some ways my first live rock experience in a bigger venue. And then to have that, and then I did not recall that it was just literally two or three months later that I was seeing the Joshua Tree album, which to this day, that that performance, that particular, to see U2 in 87 at that moment where they getting ready to go to Tempe to, to record Rattle and Hum, this was really, this album in particular coincided with a lot of my coming of age just moments like driving getting a cd starting to understand politics and getting a, a view into that you know even even when it comes to like the one i love being a love song and then actually having a girlfriend and thinking mm, this is not something i'd necessarily want to play for her. <laughs> like, <laughs> dedicate this kind of song to somebody but yeah no it's been a lot of fun like this was i was like i said i, had, I don't remember the last time i listened to this album and i was had a lot of fun going back and revisiting it so i appreciate you making me do it mac b I thought you'd be a good good choice for it. I knew you knew the stuff. The fact that you've seen him on this tour makes you unique among me and Jackson. Oh, no, I think he makes me old. Pe seasoned. People used to mistake Jackson for my little brother. Now they ask if he's my son. So, you know. <laughs> hey, this is Action Jackson. The Wolf and I are coming at you on the Ugly American Werewolf in London podcast. Then there were two. And then there were... 
then there were two. Looks like that was a pretty fun tour for that, man. I mean, I'm looking at the night on setlist.fm, and, they, you know, they played a pretty good show, and then they did seven songs in the encore. Technically, there were three encores. I, I can't imagine him. I, that's that's so bizarre to me. I can't imagine him, or I can't imagine them playing Orange Crush that hadn't even been out yet. I mean, the record company people must have had a stroke over that. No, no, this is this is something new. Don't put this out now. But it, well, they hadn't even done it yet. They hadn't even gotten to Warner Brothers yet. You know, they were still completely, this is their last thing with IRS. But it's something they've done for years. If you go back and look at their set lists over the years, they're on the Life's Rich pageant tour. They were playing songs that were going to end up on document. You go back, that's, and a lot of bands used to do that back in the day. And they did it, I mean, 25 songs they played when Tom saw them. I, you know, it must have been less when I saw them on the green. But they uh, they went out and worked. They earned what they got. Yeah, and, and that's kind of the hallmark of, of bands, especially the ones that we really like, are guys who want to. They, they understand that's why you're doing this. You record the music so you can go out and play it live to these people. And, yeah, I, I never really realized they worked this hard either, but I think it's cool. It just kind of adds to my appreciation for them. They're not the – if you – out what a successful band would have to be super, you know, on top of everything. REM wouldn't have any of that stuff. They they kind of made their own way. They kind of put their own stamp on music in the late '80s and into the early '90s, mid '90s, which I think was really cool because, yeah, in a time where you said they weren't even in their videos, right. MTV was selling bands. They were selling image. They were selling you know sex appeal, and they wanted nothing to do with any of that. Well, apparently, yeah, you, you couldn't force them to put themselves in their own videos but they still made the videos and I don't know where right. they were playing the videos because 120 minutes didn't come along until 1986 or 87 something like that but they were one of the people I guess because they had this content were pushing MTV to create an outlet to create a show and I think at first it was weekly and eventually there was kind of a 30 minute I think daily show at least yeah. week, weekday kind of show that, that went off but anyway yeah R.E.M. see the thing is they need to market stuff I understand they have to label things so fans can identify with them so they know which box of records they should go look at at the record store right but what it shows me is that if you're good you'll rise to the top of wherever they put you and REM had the goods they had the goods as musicians they had the goods as songwriters and they had the goods with a work ethic to go out there and get it done you know and even though I trailed off after Automatic for the people for the most part you know some of Monster I guess I was down with but uh, after after that my musical taste changed they had kind of gone become more pop just kind of evolved into something different that's something I didn't like just stop following them I guess but this is the one this is this is the one that branches between those two times right yeah you, yeah, you can really yeah this, this is the rocket ship starting to go into into what it would become i was thinking about uh, you're talking about we're talking about production values thinking about like the terminator movies Mm -hmm. like you know you you watch the first terminator and then you say okay what if we made the same movie but we spent a zillion dollars on it and then you got it's a lot slicker but it's the same this was kind of the same deal like it was just their evolution of you could have gone one of two ways you could have stayed indie and put out these little records or you could have reached out and become something else, but kind of not really because they never really kind of, I know they did lose it for original fans, but I don't think they ever, maybe at the very end they got to be more pop, but especially at this point in time, they maintain the edge with becoming more accessible. Yeah. It's 
all an evolution, you know, it's all an evolution over time. But they also begin to better understand and own their political views, I think, too. Even as they went to a bigger audience, they're not softening that bad edge. They're not saying, okay, well, now it's okay if you uh, go and take over third world countries in Central America. We, we don't, that doesn't bother us anymore. No, no, they, they kept their edge and they found ways to keep the message up front while still delivering on the, the music side, the, the sonic side. Yeah, no, this is Scott Litt's first time with the band. As good as some of the other albums are, like Life's Rich Pageant, Document just sounds better. And it's Scott Litt's first of six, right? He went on to do Green and Out of Time, Automatic for the People, Monster, Adventures of Hi-Fi. Really, as they made that huge climb from college band sensation to one of the biggest bands in the world i just i just remember because we talked about it at the beginning i just remember that polarizing camps these two camps of people what and i was i was on the outside of all of it thinking wow this is really like this this really gets ugly with people talking about how you know this was their band this was the indie band no one knew about them but me and i've got all their records and i listen to them and you don't care about them you just heard what was on the radio and you're jumping on the bandwagon oh, i don't have time for all this but right. I, I i understand that i understand that mentality there is part of the original people kind of like metallica you mm-hmm. know you always want them to be this underground band but there there is no it's almost like you can't stop it once it gets to a certain point it, they, they've got too much too much momentum, too much heat behind them, and that's just the next, like you said, evolution. And either you go along with it or you don't, and that's what happens. Yeah, yeah. Black Album was a big divider. Mm-hmm. It sold a lot better than Document, too. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I guess it, it, it all it's all very personal music, and the fact that this came out when I was like 14, starting high school, trying to find my identity, you know, Tom's just a couple years ahead of us, but like he was telling, he had to move to an all new place suddenly when he was like 15, 16. like, all right, you've got friends, you've grown up here a long time. Boom, new place, new routine. And that's the, you know? that's the first thing everybody wants to know. I don't know this guy. What's up with this? Per- what do you listen to? Wait, what's your, what are your, because that just tell back then that told you pretty much everything you want to know about somebody. So yeah, I can imagine that like, oh, it's a new place. I got to have something cool to bring to the table. And it's pretty n- nice. It's like the first week he was there, R.E.M. was in town on Life's Rich Pageant and like all the kids were going. And then when they came a year later, he was, you know, in the know then and he went and saw the tour, you know, and um, that's that's pretty fun. Yeah, I, I'm glad to be able to share that because we would have seen, I would have seen them on the green tour. Is that sophomore year, junior year, whatever. I think sophomore year maybe, but the stakes were obviously higher, right? They, they had a bigger MTV presence. They had had more production value on their videos. They had these guest stars like Kate from B-52s on their records and Warner Brothers obviously was pumping it out there. So uh, it's like, all right, they've grown up. Now what have they got? How are they the same? How are they different? I think they were still doing the political thing. Orange Crush was basically about the Vietnam War and that's their first big single and obviously what the whole video was about. So I I don't know. I, I, I endured some parts of Green because I didn't love, you know, like pop song and all that kind of stuff shiny um, happy people yeah shiny happy people yeah <laughs> but then out of time it was like ah you know, even with a mandolin i'm like that's a cool sound and i, I just thought they, they brought it back in a big way but you know it's it, the real divider is this document album people who had everything up to them from chronic town all the way to this were like 
this is still our band. It's great that it went platinum, but we don't want everybody figuring out how awesome they are for some. It's too personal or something. But yeah, I mean, to, to your point, this was this was the divider. This was the kind of the lightning rod to, and I don't know too, because I knew a lot of people too. Now that I'm thinking about it, who got all bent out of shape, but they didn't leave. They they still hung in there. Well, that's my question because eventually I did stop buying these. I I stopped after out of time because automatic for the people. Then I don't know. You and I were listening to some different stuff at that point and just kind of growing in a different direction. REM's being very pop at this point and people like our friend John would buy the record so that we didn't have to, you know, kind of thing. It's true. You do. It's true. Yeah, didn't buy Automatic for the People, didn't buy Monster, no new adventures in Hi-Fi and then after that I pretty much tuned out. I know that they continued to make records after that but I wasn't even aware of them at that point because I was going back into the old 70s rock and some 60s rock. Yeah. Discovering some hard rock and some heavy metal and some progressive rock so I kind of outgrew REM they probably outgrew me too but I, I, I was one of those I wasn't there from the beginning I caught on at this point went backwards Green came out it was a disappointment Out of Time came out I was excited about it and then after that I was kind of like a casual fan for a while and then it, it went away and I wonder how many people did any leave with Green and not come back or did they stay on and did they stay to the end or did they kind of you know eh, music wears off on people sometimes yeah I don't know and, and then is it, it were you upset just to be upset you weren't really upset with the music because because they really didn't they, they had a more accessible pop sound but they never really uh, up until kind of the later ones kind of lost the edge so I think there were people who were just they kind of just shook their fists but right. you know you still were following them and the same thing with Metallica too shut up you know that there wasn't anybody who liked the old stuff that didn't listen to the black record you just you wanted to just be upset for a while but I think that it just it just proves that if something is good like if it's a really good record if the if the lyrics are there and the music is there and you can kind of connect it to a time in your life it'll never really get old like if like you know like tom was saying he hadn't listened to it for a while i would have loved to have been there just sitting there while he listened to it again thinking oh yeah it's like meeting you know it's your old friend you run into hey i remember all these songs why haven't I listened to this? Well, because you got a million things you got to do. You got kids. You got other stuff. But right. yeah, just just to have that that trip in the time machine again is pretty is is special to somebody who had such a connection with it. Yeah, yeah. What did you think about Tom's insights there? I thought it was cool. Uh, definitely, definitely a guy who yeah, he's older a little bit, but definitely in the same mm. in the same kind of headspace. I think you know we could probably you know he had a connection with this one, mm -hmm. but probably we could talk about other stuff too because he. He's of the same mindset. Yeah, he knows music. He knows a lot of music. He knows about music, so he can talk maybe a little bit more articulately about it than we can sometimes. But no, I know it was cool. I think it was a good. It was a good deal. I'm glad that he he could bring something more personal to it mm -hmm. than I could because I mean my, this was kind of just a, a a very distant memory for me on this record. But what I like is can I listen to it and and just pick things out. And kind of bring that to the table. Here's what I here's what I picked up from this record. Yeah, and you know maybe hey, we didn't go do every single song. Uh, you know, we didn't necessarily do it in complete working order there, but we talked about it all yeah. of it. And it, it, again, because it happened at this certain time or life, there's a lot more emotion than just here's the actual song and here's exactly what it's about and here's what I like about the riff or the beat or whatever. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
Well, that concludes episode number 54 on REM's document with me, the Wolf, Mac B, as always, Action Jackson, and our good friend Tom C., my dear old buddy from America who has a great knowledge of rock music, is a musician in his own right, and we had him on today to talk about REM's document because he had such a personal set of memories that goes along with it. Anytime you're starting high school like me and Jackson were, or you're starting at a new school the way Tom was, just a couple years older than we are, what you listen to at that time, those very formative years when you're talking about first car, first girlfriends, going to parties, getting into college, high school sports, all that kind of fun stuff. There was a soundtrack to that. And some of it may have been stuff that had been out for a long time. Like we listened to Hot Rocks a lot. We listened to a lot of Rush and things like that. But to listen to something that was of the now at that point, a new band with a new record that appealed to people our age. It was great to be able to listen to it all over again, which I had not in so long, and to share some memories and some ideas about the records with the guys and understand the emotions, the memories, everything that ties together R.E.M.'s document into our lives. Really fun stuff, and we'll definitely have you on again, Tom. Thanks so much for coming on. Now, if you like that, hopefully you like some of our other stuff, and I encourage you to listen to all of it wherever you get your podcasts, be it Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Good Pods, Pod Chaser, now on Samsung. And check us out on our website, www.uglyamericanwerewolf.libsyn.com. And if you did like what you heard today, hey, give us a nice review wherever you get your podcast. It just helps us find more listeners like you and line up more things for the show. Of course, you can tweet us at ugly underscore werewolf and at actionjack72 to let us know which albums, bands, concerts, films, songs you want us to talk about here. Next week, if you're a long-time listener to the show, you know that we find a way to work this band into most every show one way or the other. Yes, that's Prog Pop Supergroup Asia. Asia just put out a huge box set collection of live bootlegs. I think it's called Live Bootleg Volume 1 for the original band. John Wetton, Steve Howe, Jeff Downs, and Carl Palmer. A 10-disc set. And we're going to be reviewing that here next time on The Wolf. So until then, rock and rollers all over the world, be cool and stay safe. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com. Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.